Hi, and thanks for listening to another audio podcast from Creekside Community Church, Narangba, Queensland. For more information and resources, please visit our website at www.creekside.org.au. Good morning. Uh, thanks again to the worship team and for Earl for uh, leading us. Uh, this morning and keeping us in the loop in terms of what's happening with our missionaries and uh, we move I guess in our next step of worship into opening God's word. Thanks also to Troy who gives me opportunity to preach from time to time. He does offer me more opportunities but I'm, I'm a bit busy and uh, but I do appreciate uh, what you do offer. Um, it's a big thing for a pastor to give up a pulpit. That's a, that's a big thing. Uh, so I appreciate your encouragement. Uh, I was given a fairly long text this morning and I got four verses in and that's as far as I got. Um, but I think I don't want to go any further. I just want to share what's in those few verses. But I want to begin with a story from a book called A Gentle Thunder by Max Licardo. I don't know if you know Max Licardo, but he's a, a very good writer, Christian writer and pastor in America. And he tells a story of when he was in a vacation, on vacation uh, to a historical city with his family. He said, uh, recently we took our kids on a vacation while going on a tour through an old house in a historical city. We followed a family from New York. Uh, I, they didn't tell me they were from New York. They didn't have to, he said, I could tell. They wore New York clothes. Their teenager had one half of his head shaved and on the other half of his head his hair hung past his shoulders. The daughter wore layered clothes and long beads. The mother looked like she had raided her daughter's cupboard that morning. And the dad's hair was down past the back of his neck. I had them all figured out, he says, he writes. The kid was probably on drugs. The parents were going through a midlife crisis. They were rich but miserable and in need of counselling. Good thing I was nearby in case they wanted some spiritual counselling. After a few moments, they introduced themselves. He said, I was right. They were from New York. But that's all I got right. When I told them my name, they were flabbergasted. Oh, we can't believe it, they said. We've read all your books. We use them in our Sunday school class in church. I tried to get over to hear you when you spoke in our area, said the father, but that was our family night and I wasn't going to sacrifice that. Sunday school, church, family night. Oh boy, I'd made a mistake. I'd applied the label before examining the contents. A familiar story, I guess. James is a pastor of a church in Jerusalem. And he, in these opening passages of chapter 2, describes what I guess is a familiar scene. Perhaps he's seen this in the synagogue service. And this whole passage is about his concern for the way his congregants were treating visitors to the church. 
he writes in verse 2, suppose a man comes into your meeting wearing gold, a gold ring, fine clothes, and a poor man in filthy clothes also comes in. If you show special attention to the man wearing fine clothes and say, here's a good seat for you, but say to the poor man, you stand there or sit on the floor by my feet. Have you not discriminated among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? So imagine what he's saying. We're here on a Sunday in a worship service and two men enter. One man wore spotless, shining white garments, probably linen and certainly taken from a large wardrobe because in the ancient times only the wealthy could afford that kind of clothing. He also wore a gold ring or gold rings on his fingers. In the ancient world, and I'm hesitant to say this because my wife's here, but in the ancient world, rings were worn on every finger except the middle one. And you would wear more than just one on a finger. They even hired rings to wear when people wished to give the impression that they had special wealth. So you can imagine, ding, 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 all these rings on their fingers, except the middle one. In fact, one of our early church fathers, Clement of Alexandra, who was a Christian theologian and philosopher, actually recommended to the early church that Christians should only wear one ring and put it on your little finger. And if you can, make it some kind of Christian symbol, like a fish. The white garments and the multiple rings together imply that this fellow who walks in was a powerful, influential, wealthy person in their city. The other walks in with clothing that was tattered and dirty. The Greek word actually can be translated as vile or filth, which is de desperately obviously a poor person, and that's the only garment they can afford. They only have one. And they're obviously unadorned by any jewellery. The believers are quick to speak to both men. Now we also know this, interesting, there's other uh, texts written around the time of the early church that shows that pastors and leaders of the early church would push people and their congregation to make sure as soon as someone comes in to your home, someone new, you get up and greet them. So it's great that when these two men walk in, there are people there to speak and to serve them. But they did so with different words and a different level of service. The rich man's ushered to a special seat with all ceremony and respect, while the poor man is bidden to stand, perhaps squat on the floor beside the footstool of the well-to-do. Now, when you think about it, there must have been some social problems in the early church. There must have been some awkwardness 
when a master comes in and their servant sits next to them on an equal level. It must have been awkward when a slave was sitting next to a master taking from the same communion as their master. But James writes in chapter 2, verse 1, My brothers, show no partiality as you hold out the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. The King James is slightly different. My brethren, have the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, with respects to people. It's really important to note the word that James uses, which is translated as partiality. In the ancient world, it reflects really two things. Showing this kind of favouritism is based purely on external appearance. That's what the word means. But also, showing that kind of favouritism is motivated by hope of personal gain. So it's based on what they look like and what I can get from them. And this word that James uses reveals two alarming aspects of believers' favouritism. The first is, these believers are driven by selfish motives. Specifically, the church members immediately direct their energy and attention to a person whose influence and power could advance their own standing or the standing of the church. That person can give them something. As for the poor man, he's treated like a hindrance or an inconvenience. They look at this man and judge his appearance, this wealthy person, and they think to themselves, this person could put a lot of money in our offering bag. This person must have the skills to take over some of the programs we're running. This person would be a good name to drop to show how important our church is when we're out in the real world. Selfish motives can influence how we treat others. The second thing that this favoritism does is it creates an ungodly division in Christ's unified body. Worldly wealth and worldly status have no influence in God's kingdom. What the world determines as significant, as important, based on these kinds of outward appearances, has no place in the kingdom of Christ. And when believers introduce these kinds of distinctions into his body, the church, they radically distort God's design for his church. The whole point of Christ's kingdom, Christ's ministry, and fundamentally the work on the cross was to widen the door to the kingdom and say all are invited. 
to break down the barriers that once surround Israel and to welcome any who choose to believe and put their faith in Jesus Christ. Whether rich or poor, Jew or Gentile, male or female, as Paul writes in Galatians 3, 28. And when James looks at his congregation and he sees his favouritism, he doesn't hesitate to call it what it is. He gives it its real name. It is sin. It is sin. I was pastoring a church down on the south side many years ago now. And the, the neighbourhood that the church was in was a socially and culturally diverse church. And over time, we saw lots of people coming into the church from different cultural backgrounds, different educational experiences, different family experiences, but we're all coming together. That's what I really loved about that church. I loved, this is going off on a bit of a tangent, but I loved that we had a Pentecostal pastor, a conservative pastor, a guy who planted churches and Bible colleges in Europe all under the one roof. It was niggling from time to time, but I didn't mind that. I'd been a pastor for about five years before I went to this church. And I had to deal with the things that pastors do. A lot of conflict in the church. Dealing with things like domestic violence. Escorting police around to a home to have the person removed. Dealing with people who have lost loved ones. All the things that somehow in an odd way are a blessing but are also incredibly difficult. But one thing that hit me harder more than anything else was when people in that church came up to me and said, we're moving on to another church. And I asked them why, when things seem to be going so well. And they literally said to me, and I quote because I still remember it, because we don't really like the type of people coming into our church. We don't really like the type of people who feel welcomed in our church. And so we're moving on. That, more than anything else, and I don't know why, kicked me in the guts as a pastor more than anything else. Because it is the opposite to everything that I was working for and that I stood for. So what should our attitude be? Jesus is our ideal when it comes to people. When we look through the Gospels, we see that Jesus literally touched the lives of those who were diseased, who were outcasts. He mingled with the religious, the non-religious. He had conversations with the rich and with the poor. He broke down racial, cultural and gender stereotypes and cultural boundaries. Jesus' life transcends 
the attitudes of this world. And I come back to the King James Version of chapter 2, verse 1, because I think it's really helpful here. My brethren, have the faith, has the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glory of our Lord, have that faith with respect to persons. The Greek word for respect for persons can also be translated as acceptance of persons. Have the same attitude of Christ in regards to his acceptance of persons. Notice also in the plural, persons. That includes all the varied forms of persons encountered by Jesus. Jesus has shown himself through his whole life to be a respecter of individuals. Now, I work in learning support here at the school. Talk about labels. There are labels coming in from all types of specialists. But the one thing we as a team try to fight against, even though those specialists, you know, the reports that are coming in are really really important we make sure that when that little person walks in the room we see them first we see them first just like anybody else they are an individual person who needs some help and Jesus as I said was a respecter of persons unfortunately he's then accused of being as you know a friend of sinners. But Jesus reveals to us the heart of God towards people. And that is that all people have intrinsic dignity and value and are invited to be part of his kingdom. David's words in the Psalms give us a glimpse of this. And this is a verse that I often see on the walls of teachers in the school psalm 8 verse 4 what is man that you are mindful of him the son of man that you care for him you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor speaking of human beings the last phrase of that passage is literally translated as as you have made him that is humankind lack a little from god with glory and honor isn't that incredible Isn't that incredible? And isn't that such a contrast to what people, and in particular children, get taught today? Not here. Because this is our essential splendour, the splendour of all people. We all share that equal glory. And if racism and violence and hatred are to die, it will only do so on the biblical basis of who we are as human beings made in the image of God. Remember in the ancient world that the church was really the only place where social distinctions were not encouraged. Kudos to those early church pastors who had to break down those kinds of distinctions. We need to learn to respect each person in his or her essential splendour, granted by virtue of being created in the image of God. That value is one's birthright with God as his or her heavenly father. 
So let's go back to Max Lucado. Sunday school, church, family night. Boy, I'd made the mistake, he writes. I applied the label before examining the contents. No, no. The goal is to get rid of the labels. That's the goal. If we judge people like he did judging this family in comparison to another, based on their occupation, their physical appearance, the colour of their skin, their education or intellect, their family history, if that's how we judge people and they walk through these doors, then we are no different. No different from the world out there. In fact, we've fallen even further. As I read, two contemporary cosmologists recently made the comment that ultimately it's not human beings who are important, it's DNA. Where is the human dignity in that statement? And we now use such distinctions we have created that are contrary to what Jesus taught us to justify horrific and horrendous things we do even to the unborn. So we follow the ideal of Jesus. And how do we do this? By practicing agape love. As the embodiment of, Jesus, of love, Jesus is the perfect exemplar of what it means to love others. We follow him and what he demonstrated. Practicing the law of love, praying that God will help us to love others will keep us from doing many things where our innormal natural impulses would often do. And it will make, make us very careful of every word and action towards our neighbour. I'll finish with a quote from Augustine, an early theologian and philosopher again, who says this, Where love is, there doth God reside. Possess love, and you will see him in your own heart, seated as on his throne. And that's where the kingdom of God is. It is in your heart. And the changing and transforming of your heart and your attitudes towards your neighbours is the beginning of the kingdom of God becoming established here in this world. Let's pray before Jesse comes back up. Heavenly Father, you promise us so much and have given us so much in the gospel of Jesus Christ. We pray, Lord, that without your divine enabling, we will see our neighbours according to our own prejudices, according to how the world defines people and things. So we ask, Lord, that you would empower us, give us a different perspective. Help us to see through the eyes of Christ and to be your hands in our actions as we demonstrate to others what it means to love one's neighbour. And especially based on chapter 2 of James's book, Lord, the reminder that when people come into this church, that we would see them as individual people in need of the gospel, uh, the gospel that has so gracefully transformed our lives and given us everything that we need. Amen.